0: Section 3 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Stuart on the Romans, Part 1. A commentary on the Epistle to the Romans with a translation and various excursus by Moses Stuart, Professor of Sacred Literature in the Theological Seminary at Andover. Andover, printed and published by Flagg and Gould, New York, S. Levitt, Number 182, Broadway, 1832. Pages 576. Princeton Review, July 1833. Professor Stewart's commentary on the epistle to the Romans is undoubtedly one of the most important productions of the American press. Whether we consider the importance of the subjects which it discusses, or the research and learning which it displays, it is clearly entitled to this elevated rank. Every reader must observe that the author is familiar with all the usual sources of modern criticism, that he has been long trained in the school of philological interpretation, that he is habituated to minute examination, and that, on all ordinary matters, he has a clearness of view, and a perspicuity and order of style and method, which confer on this work a great and lasting value." This value is greatly enhanced by the consideration that Professor Stewart, having formed himself on the modern German school of expositors, has produced a work very different from the usual productions of the English school. These latter are generally doctrinal and practical rather than philological. However, important works constructed after the English model may be to the general and even the professional reader, yet for the careful student of the scriptures who is desirous of ascertaining with accuracy and certainty the meaning of the word of God, There can be no question that the German is immeasurably the better and the safer plan. There can be no solid foundation for theological opinion, but the original text of Scripture fairly interpreted. We have, therefore, long been in the habit of regarding Professor Stuart as one of the greatest benefactors of the Church in our country, because he has been the principal means of turning the attention of the rising generation of ministers to this method of studying the Bible. This, we doubt not, is the great service of his life, a service for which the whole church owes him gratitude and honour, and which will be remembered when present differences and difficulties are all forgotten. We do him, therefore, unfeigned homage as the great American reformer of biblical study, as the introducer of a new era, and the most efficient opponent of metaphysical theology." Alas, that he should himself have fallen on that very enchanted ground, from which it was the business and the glory of his life to recall his younger brethren. In perfect consistency with this high opinion of Professor Stewart's services, and of the value of his work, we still think the latter has very numerous and very serious faults. The first and most fatal seem to have arisen from his not having discovered, before writing the 542nd page, quote, that his main design was commentary and not didactic theology, end quote. The work is too theological. The frequent discussions of this nature in which the author indulges are rather out of place in a work of this kind, and are, moreover, singularly unfortunate. It is in these discussions the writer has most signally failed, misapprehended the subject in debate, misconceived the meaning of the authors whom he quotes, contradicted himself, done violence to his own theoretical rules of interpretation, and gratuitously denounced doctrines, which have not only always been regarded as part of the common faith of Protestant Christendom, but which he himself over and over either asserts or implies. Evidence of the justice of these remarks will be given as we proceed. It is a difficult task to review a commentary satisfactorily, it would be of little use to go over the chapters in detail and commend the instances of happy interpretation, and to attempt to refute those of a contrary character would require us to write a commentary ourselves. We intend, therefore, to pass by much that we think excellent and much that we think erroneous, and to confine our attention, at least for the present, to Professor Stewart's exposition of Romans 5, 12-19, and the excursus therewith connected, This is the most characteristic and important part of his work. It cannot be denied that this passage is a very difficult portion of the Word of God. As such, it has always been regarded and must still be considered after all that has been written on the subject. Still, we have no hesitation in saying the grand difficulty is to get round it. It inculcates a doctrine which many men are very unwilling to admit. To get rid of this doctrine is the difficulty. Hence these lamentations over its obscurity. A similar obscurity rests, in view of many, over the ninth chapter of this epistle, and for a similar reason. Now, we venture to assert that those who have no special prejudice against the doctrine of imputation, and the federal headship of Adam and Christ, are not so much disposed to complain of the obscurity of the passage before us. It is only when a man is predetermined that it does not, and that it shall not teach either these doctrines, or that of the transmission of a corrupt nature, that he is so much at a loss to know what it does teach, and it is really enough to move anyone's commiseration to see such a man as Professor Stewart so obviously and hopelessly in conflict with the plain meaning and argument of the Apostle, fruitlessly struggling to disengage himself from its toils, forced to admit what he denies and teach what he rejects, travelling backwards and forwards, bewildered in the mazes of his own exposition. We feel entitled to express this confidence in the first place because we feel it, In the second, because the great body of impartial commentators, not merely Calvinistic, but Pelagian, Neological, and Infidel, agree in every essential part of the ordinary view. And thirdly, because the objections to this interpretation are all theological. We say all because those of an exegetical character are hardly worthy of consideration. But let us proceed. According to the common view of this passage, it naturally resolves itself into four parts. One, Verse 12, which contains this general proposition, all men die or are regarded and treated as sinners on account of Adam, i.e. of his sin. 2, verses 13 and 14, which prove this proposition, the proof is the universality of death can in no other way be accounted for. Neither the law of Moses nor the law of nature is sufficiently extensive to account for all bearing this penalty. Therefore it must be that men are subject to death on account of Adam. He is therefore a type of Christ, that is, there is a striking point of resemblance between them, as we are condemned on account of the one, so we are justified on account of the other. 3. Verses 15, 16, and 17 are a commentary on this proposition, by which it is at once illustrated and limited. First, In the first place, if it is consistent with the divine character, that we should die for the offence of one, how much more that we should live for the righteousness of one. Second, we are condemned in Adam for one sin only. Christ saves us from many. Third, Christ not only saves us from evil, but advances us to a state of endless life and glory, or this verse 17 may be considered as a repetition and amplification of the 15th. Four, verses 18 and 19 resume and carry out the sentiment and comparison of verse 12. As we are condemned for the offence of one, so we are justified by the righteousness of another. For if on account of the disobedience of one, we are regarded and treated as sinners, so on account of the obedience of the other, we are regarded and treated as righteous. Verses 20 and 21 form the conclusion of the chapter, and are designed, first, to answer the natural objection that this view of the method of salvation makes the law useless, and second, that the grace of God in the gospel of his Son superabounds and triumphs over sin, however produced or increased. In this analysis we have stated in general terms the meaning of the several portions of the passage, the correctness of this statement, and the force of the several subordinate clauses, we shall endeavour to exhibit as we proceed. Professor Stewart, in his introduction to chapter 6 and 8, Properly remarks that correct views as to the general course of a writer's thoughts in a given passage is a sine qua non, to a right exegesis of the whole. How can we correctly explain a writer unless we rightly apprehend his aim and the scope of his discourse? It is impossible, etc. Page 249. It will therefore not be questioned that it is a matter of no little importance to ascertain the design and scope of the apostle in the passage before us. On this subject, there are various opinions. We shall give but three. 1. Some say the Apostle's main design is to exalt our views of the blessings procured by Christ, and to show that these blessings superabound over all the evils of the fall. 2. Others say that his object is to counteract the narrow-minded prejudices of the Jews, by showing that, as the evils of the fall extended to all, Gentiles as well as Jews, so do the blessings of the gospel. 3. Others think that his design is to illustrate the great gospel truth of justification on the grounds of the merits of Jesus Christ, by a reference to the other grand analogous fact in the history of our race, the condemnation of men, on the ground of the demerit of Adam, and thus answer the natural objection, how can the merit of one man justify others? Professor Stewart says, page 200, that the first view here given is so obviously correct that the most unpractised critic can hardly fail to discern the general object as thus stated. If he is wrong here, he must on his own principles be wrong all the way through, and that he is wrong, we think no critic, practised or unpractised, can fail to discern who will attend to the few following considerations. In the first place, the idea of the superabounding of the blessing of the gospel over the evils of the fall is not expressly stated until the 21st verse, that is, until the whole comparison is gone through with. And then, in immediate connection with the question, for what purpose did the law enter? Secondly, although this idea is contained in verses 15, 16, and 17, yet, as Professor Stewart admits, these verses are parenthetical, and of course might be left out and still the main design be expressed. As verses 13 and 14 are subordinate to verse 12, and verses 15, 16, and 17, to the last clause of verse 14, it is evident that verses 12, 18, and 19 must contain the main idea of the passage. In these verses, the idea of the superabounding of grace is not included at all. Professor Stewart has exalted a mere corollary into the main design and scope of the passage. 2. More might be said in favour of the second view, but this also, as will appear in the sequel, is inconsistent with the course of the argument. Paul is not yet speaking of the applicability of the gospel to the case of the Gentiles. 3. That the third view mentioned above is the only correct one, we think will appear from the following considerations. Let it be remembered that there are two grand subjects of discussion in this epistle, viz. the doctrine of justification and the calling of the Gentiles. In other words, the method of salvation and the persons to whom that method is to be proposed. The consideration of the first extends to the close of the eighth chapter. The discussion of the second commences with the ninth. From the eighteenth verse of the first chapter, Paul argues against the possibility of justification by works, because all men, Gentiles and Jews, are sinners and guilty before God. Having, in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3, arrived at that conclusion, from the 21st verse, he unfolds the gospel method. This he confirms throughout the fourth chapter from the case of Abraham, the declaration of David, the nature of the law, etc. In the fifth, he commences by stating some of the consequences of this method of justification. We have peace with God, access to Him, confidence in His favour, and assurance of eternal life founded on the love of God. And the fact that we are justified not for anything in us or done by us, but by the blood of his Son. Wherefore, verse 12, that is, since we are justified for what one man has done. As we have been brought into a state of condemnation by one man, so by one man are we justified and saved. There is nothing more wonderful in the obedience of one saving many than in the disobedience of one destroying many, nor so much. If the one has happened, much more may the other. This is a brief but, as we believe, correct view of the context, and shows clearly enough the design of the Apostle in the passage before us. Footnote. In chapters 6 and 7 the Apostle answers the standing objection that this method of justification leads to licentiousness by proving that it is the only effectual means of sanctification, the law being as incompetent for the one purpose as the other. Then comes the swelling grandeur of the eighth chapter in which he exalts in the certainty and security of this method of salvation. End footnote. As the general context requires this view of the apostle's object, so it is the only one with which the course of the argument can be made to agree. The fact is that the whole argument bears so lucidly and conclusively on this point that it is no wonder that men are involved in perplexity when they wish to make it bear on any other. What the course of argument is we have stated above. All men are subject to death on account of Adam. This is proved in verses 13 and 14. And being proved is all the way through assumed to illustrate the other great truth. If we thus die, are thus condemned, much more may we, by a similar arrangement, be saved. This is so clearly the prominent idea of the Apostle that Professor Stewart cannot avoid seeing and admitting it before he gets through. Thirdly. Not only the general context and the course of argument requires this view of the Apostle's object, but also all the leading clauses separately considered. This point, therefore, will become clearer at every step as we advance. The delightful fact that the grace of the gospel superabounds over the evils of the fall is, however, not the less true because its exhibition is not the main object of the passage before us. As Professor Stewart takes a false view of the design of this passage, we are not surprised to find him involved in perplexity at the very first step in his exposition. He is very much at a loss about the connection, as indicated by the words the in the beginning of the 12th verse, which he says are so difficult in this connection. He devotes more than two pages to this point. We suspect his readers see very little difficulty in the case. The whole doctrine of the preceding part of the epistle, and the assertion of the immediately preceding verses, is that by one man, not by our merits, we are justified. What more natural association, or what plainer inference, than the analogy between this and the other grand fact in the history of men? Tollock and Flat, Professor Stewart remarks, both represent these words as illative, quote, but they do not show how the sequel is a deduction from what precedes. end quote. Neither of these writers seems to have felt any difficulty in the case. Tolloch dismisses the words in two lines, explaining them thus, Aus dem bisher Gesagten geht hervor, i.e. it follows from what has been said. So much for the scope of the passage and its connection, let us now inquire into the meaning of, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed on all men, for that all have sinned, Every reader feels that something is wanting to complete the sense in this verse. We have here only one half of the comparison. The question is, where are we to seek the other? We think with Professor Stewart that the majority of interpreters are right, quote, in regarding verses 13 to 17 as substantially a parenthesis, thrown in to illustrate a sentiment brought to view in the protasis, verse 12. And I find, he continues, a full apodosis only in verses 18 and 19, where the sentiment of verse 12 is virtually resumed and repeated, and where the apodosis regularly follows after an utokke. End quote. As this is the only satisfactory view of the passage, it is important that it should be borne in mind. Verses 18 and 19, then, it is admitted, resume and repeat the sentiment of verse 12. Of course, whatever is obscure in verse 12 may fairly be illustrated from verses 18 and 19. It is by no means unusual for the Apostle thus to interpret himself, and after qualifying or confirming a position, resume and carry out his original idea. In the present instance, Paul, intending to run a parallel between the fall and the restoration of men, begins with the usual sign of a comparison, as by one man sin and death entered into the world, so by one man justification and life. But the protasis needed confirmation, and he therefore gives it before fully expressing the apodosis, and as at the close of this confirmation the idea of a correspondence which he had in his mind is really expressed by calling Adam a type of Christ, he feels that this position needed limitation and illustration, and he therefore gives both in verses 15, 16 and 17, and then resumes and states fully the main idea. There is considerable diversity of opinion as to the meaning of the clause sin entered into the world and death by sin. 1 by amartia, or sin, in this case Calvin and a host of commentators, ancient and modern, understand corruption, depravity, vitiositas, and by entered into the world, not simply commenced, but was spread over the world, so that the idea is, all men became corrupt and consequently subject to death through Adam. 2. Others suppose that the meaning is merely sin commenced with Adam and death as its necessary consequence. He was the first sinner, and the first sufferer of death. 3. Others understand the Apostle as saying, through Adam, men became sinners. Adam was the cause of sin and death, iston cosmon, being equivalent to ispantas tus anthropus. Hence the phrase, sin entered into the world, is equivalent with all sinned, or became sinners. We think the last is the true sense, because the second leaves out of view the main idea expressed by the anos and because Paul evidently intended to express a comparison, which is not, as Adam died for sin, so all men die for theirs, but as Adam was the cause of sin and death, so Christ of righteousness and life. We shall not, however, discuss this point here, as the whole matter will come up more advantageously when we come to the latter part of the verse. Another interesting inquiry is as to the meaning of the word death in this passage. And here again we are happy to be able to agree with Professor Stewart, who, in accordance with the views of the great body of evangelical commentators, understands the word in its ordinary biblical sense when connected with sin. The death which is on account of sin is surely the death which is the wages of sin. All the penal consequences of sin are, therefore, included in the term. Indeed, says Professor Stewart, I see no philological escape from the conclusion that death, in the sense of penalty for sin, in its full measure, must be regarded as the meaning of the writer here, page 208. As it is not our purpose to write a commentary on this passage, we do not adduce the grounds of this conclusion. They may be seen in Professor Stewart and other commentators, where we agree there is no necessity for argument. An important inquiry, Professor Stewart says, arises respecting the words, Viz, does the Apostle mean to say that in consequence of Adam's sin, sin and death came upon all men? Or does he mean that as Adam died on account of his sin, so in like manner all men die because all sin? In other words, do these words intimate a connection between the sin of Adam and the sin and condemnation of his race? Or merely the invariable connection between sin and death? Professor Stewart decides for the latter. On page 215, he says, "'Consider what the writer asserts. "'Death came on Adam on account of sin, "'and in like manner death came upon all men, "'because all have sinned.' But what becomes of the the enos, if this be a correct view of the substance of the verse? Surely these words are too prominent here, and in their frequent repetition throughout the passage, to be thus left out of view. It was through one man that sin came upon all men, and that all die.' Besides, as remarked above, it was confessedly not the object of the Apostle to compare the case of Adam with that of other men, and say, as Adam died, so all men die, but to compare Adam and Christ, as the one caused death, so the other caused life. Again, Professor Stewart himself admits that verses 18 and 19 resume and repeat the sentiment of verse 12, and that those verses clearly convey the idea that Adam's sin is the cause of the condemnation of his race. Of course, then, verse 12 must express this idea. He says, indeed, it is hinted in the words and de-el-the. But, if the comparison between Adam and Christ be the design of the whole passage, this, which is the main idea, should be something more than hinted at in this verse, which is acknowledged to contain the first half of the comparison. Footnote. We have found considerable difficulty in getting a clear idea of Professor Stewart's view of this passage. On page 200 he says that verses 18 and 19 virtually resume and repeat the sentiment of verse 12, and yet on page 213 he says, But it does not follow, because verse 19 asserts an influence of Adam upon the sinfulness of men, that the same sentiment must therefore be affirmed in verse 12, certainly not that it should be directly asserted in the same manner. On the same page he says, It is possible that Keutos may imply this, the connection between Adam's offence and the sinfulness of his posterity, which, with Erasmus and Tolloch, we might construe, et ita factum est, i.e., and so it happened, or thus it was brought about, viz., thus it was brought about, that all men came under the sentence of death, and also became sinners, etc. Yet, I am not persuaded that this is the true method of interpreting the words, que utos, what here is admitted as possible is declared in page 215 to be wholly inadmissible. We suspect, by the way, that Tolloch would hardly recognize, so it happened that all men sinned in Adam and were sentenced to death by reason of this sin as a correct exposition of his insofern in jenem ersten Sünde und Übel hervortrat ging es auch auf alle Teile des Geschlechts über. End footnote. This matter, however, will appear clearer when we have considered the last clause in the verse efor bantes Emarton. We agree with Professor Stewart in thinking that rendering fo, in whom, is inconsistent, if not absolutely with usage, yet with the construction of the sentence, and therefore cheerfully accede to the rendering in that or because that. The important question now presents itself, what is meant by "bantes e Marton? On this subject there are three opinions, first, that it means all have actually and personally sinned, second, all have become corrupt or depraved, and third, All became guilty, i.e., became sinners, and were so regarded and treated. Professor Stewart and a multitude of others adopt the first view. Then the sentiment of the verse is As by one man sin invaded the world and death on account of sin, so in like manner death has passed on all men because all sin. Sin began with Adam. As he died for his sin, so all men die for theirs. The connection between Adam's offence and the sin and condemnation of men is not expressed, it is merely hinted at. The second view is given by Calvin, and by a large body of the most respectable commentators, ancient and modern. The meaning of the verse, according to them, is, As by Adam, depravity or corruption entered the world, and death as its consequence, and hence death has passed on all men, since all are corrupt. So, etc., This, although it expresses a truth, is a view of the passage which, as we shall see, cannot be carried consistently through, and it misses the real point of comparison between Christ and Adam. Paul does not mean to say that, as Adam was the source or cause of corruption, so Christ is the cause of holiness, but as the offence of the one was the ground of our condemnation, so the righteousness of the other is the ground of our justification. According to the third view, the sentiment of the verse is... As through one man men became sinners and consequently exposed to death, and thus death has passed on all men, because all are regarded and treated as sinners on his account. So, on account of one, are they regarded and treated as righteous. In favour of this view, the authority of a large number of commentators might be adduced. To us it appears decidedly the correct one, and that which alone harmonises with the rest of the passage. In support of this interpretation, we would remark, 1. That it is on all hands admitted that the usus loquendi admits of this sense of the words all have sinned. Thus in Genesis forty-three nine, Judah says to Jacob, If I bring him not again, let me bear the blame. In Hebrew and Greek, it is, I will be a sinner, i.e. let me be so regarded and treated. The same form of expression occurs in chapter 44 verse 34. Bathsheba says, I and thy son Solomon shall be sinners, 1 Kings, chapter 1, verse 21, according to our version, which expresses the sense correctly, shall be counted offenders. This usage indeed is familiar and acknowledged. Two, Professor Stewart himself admits that verses 18 and 19 express the same idea with verse 12 but in those verses the Apostle teaches that the offense of Adam was the ground of our condemnation, i.e. that on his account we are regarded and treated as sinners. This Professor Stewart is forced to admit. Footnote. With regard to verse 19, he gives indeed a different view, but as we shall show at the expense of consistency. End footnote. He over and over acknowledges that the apostle in various parts of this passage represents death as coming on all men on account of the sin of Adam antecedently to any act of their own. Thus, on page six, he says, verse 15 asserts the many were brought under sentence of death by the offence of Adam. This he explains as meaning not that this offence was the occasion of our becoming sinners and thus incurring death, but that this offence was the ground of the infliction of death antecedent to any act of our own. In like manner, he adds, all receive some important benefits from Christ, even without any concurrence of their own. See page 2-8. Verse 16, he tells us, repeats the same sentiment in a more specific manner, and adds an explanation, or rather a confirmation of it. Page 2-9. He therefore renders this verse, the sentence by reason of one offence was unto condemnation, was a condemning sentence, etc., as this is a confirmation of the preceding sentiment, it can only mean this sentence of condemnation was passed on all men on account of Adam's one offence. The seventeenth verse repeats again, he tells us, page two to six, the sentiment of the two preceding, and in commenting on this verse, page two three four, he teaches, in express terms, that all are in a state of condemnation by reason of the offence of one, i.e., on the ground of the offence of one antecedent to any act of their own as his words must mean in connection with what he had just before asserted. Here, then, it is expressly taught that men are condemned, i.e. regarded and treated as sinners, on account of Adam's sin. The 18th verse contains the same doctrine because the identical words of verse 16 are therein repeated, and according to Professor Stewart, verse 18 resumes and repeats the sentiment of verse 12. If, therefore, things which are equal to the same thing are any longer equal to each other, verse 12 must express the idea that all men are regarded and treated as sinners on account of Adam's sin. Again, in the 19th verse it is said, As we are constituted sinners by the disobedience of Adam, so we are constituted righteous by the obedience of Christ. And as it is admitted that this verse carries out the comparison commenced in the 12th, If we ascertain what Paul means by saying, we are constituted sinners, we may be certain of what he intended when he said, through Adam all sinned. But in the 19th verse, as we shall endeavour to prove, the words will admit of no other interpretation than the one mentioned above, viz. we are regarded and treated as sinners. This therefore must be the meaning of the other expression in verse 12. Now, we would request any impartial reader to review these passages, Let him remember that we have given Professor Stewart's own exposition of them, except of verse 19, that he even cannot fail to see that Paul says, For one offence we die, for one offence we are condemned, for one offence death reigns over all, for the disobedience of one we are treated as sinners. And we see not how any can resist the conclusion that verse 12, which, it is admitted, expresses the same sentiment, teaches not the frigid doctrine that, as Adam sinned and died, in like manner all sin and die, nor yet that Adam's sin was the occasion of our sinning, nor yet again that through Adam we are all corrupt, but that on his account we are subject to death, or are regarded and treated as sinners. 3. As the phrases to which reference has just been made are admitted to mean that the sin of Adam was not the mere occasion but the ground of condemnation to death, it must be remembered that in verses 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, this idea is assumed as already proved. In each case, it is introduced by a for-if or some equivalent expression. This, of course, implies that verse 12 contains this proposition and that verses 13 and 14 which, it is admitted, establish the sentiment of verse 12, prove it. For how could the Apostle at every turn say, For if we die for Adam's sin, if nothing had been said beforehand of our being subject to death on his account? But according to Professor Stewart, verse 12 expresses no such idea. 4. Unless this be the meaning of the twelfth verse, no satisfactory explanation can be given of verses 13 and 14. They are introduced by har and are obviously intended to establish the doctrine of the preceding verse. Now, if the doctrine of the twelfth verse be only that all have personally sinned, and are therefore subject to death, then verses 13 and 14 are designed to prove that men were sinners before the time of Moses, and this, in fact, is the view which Professor Stewart and others adopt. But who in all the world denied this? Did the Jews who called the Gentiles sinners as a name, and whose scriptures are filled with denunciations of the vices of the heathen living before as well as after the law. Besides, how utterly frigid and destitute of all point and purpose in this connection is such a sentiment. It is most unnatural to suppose that the apostle should stop in the midst of such a passage to answer the cavil, as sin is the transgression of a law, there was no sin in the world before the time of Moses, and therefore it is not true that all have sinned when the very persons for whose benefit this cavil is answered believed that men were then not only sinners but most peculiarly and atrociously such. We do not believe an instance can be found in all of Paul's writings in which he takes the trouble to answer an objection which the objector himself is supposed to know to be futile. Yet such Professor Stewart supposes is the object of these verses. He might well remark that no intelligent or candid man could make such an objection. Those who cannot receive this view of these two verses and yet reject the interpretation of verse 12, which we are endeavouring to support, are very much at a loss how to explain them. The unsuccessful attempts to derive any pertinent meaning from them are almost numberless. On the other hand, if we regard the 12th verse as teaching that all men sin in Adam, or to express the same idea in different words, are regarded and treated as sinners on his account, then how natural and obvious the connection and reasoning... All men die on account of Adam's sin is the proposition to be proved. The universality of death, the infliction of penal evils, is the medium of proof. How is this universality to be accounted for? You may account for the fact that some men die by the violation of the divine law given to Moses, and for the fact that multitudes of others die from the violation of the divine law written upon their hearts. But this will not account for all dying. Thousands die who have never personally sinned, and consequently, if death be on account of sin, if it be penal, they must be accounted as sinners for the offence of Adam. Footnote. We are gratified to find, from page 212, that even Professor Stewart has no objection to the sentiment, all have sinned in Adam. It must be confessed, he says, that there is no more ground for objection to the sentiment which the expression, all have sinned, thus construed, would convey, than there is to the sentiment in verses 17 and 19. It is not on this ground that I hesitate to receive this interpretation. His difficulties are philological, yet there is no philology in what follows, as far as we can perceive. The difficulty stated is this. Paul says, Men die who have never sinned after the likeness of Adam's transgression. But how, it is asked, is their sin different from his, when it is the very same sin imputed to them, or propagated to them. But men cannot be said to be treated as sinners on account of Adam's sin, and it still be true that they did not sin as he did. Is it not involved in the very terms of the proposition that they did not sin as Adam did, i.e. personally, if they are only, quo ad hoc, treated as sinners on his account, so Christ is declared to be without sin and yet treated as a sinner, We are persuaded this objection will prevent no one except Professor Stewart from receiving the sentiment of verse 12, as thus explained, if this be all. It is equally destitute of weight when directed against the idea of a vitiated nature derived from Adam being the ground of men's dying, for this vitiated nature is not Adam's act, his first sin propagated to all men. It is well to remark here that on this page Professor Stewart uses the phrases TREATED AS SINNERS ON ACCOUNT OF ADAM, AND SINNERS IN HIM AS EQUIVALENT. IT WOULD HAVE BEEN A GREAT COMFORT TO HIS READERS, HAD HE CONTINUED THUS TO REGARD THEM. END FOOTNOTE. 5. IT NEED HARDLY BE REPEATED THAT THIS INTERPRETATION IS ALONE CONSISTENT WITH THE MAIN DESIGN OF THE APOSTLE. IT IS NOT, AS BEFORE REMARKED, HIS OBJECT TO ILLUSTRATE THE FACT THAT CHRIST IS THE AUTHOR OF HOLINESS, FROM THE FACT THAT ADAM WAS THE OCCASION OF LEADING MEN TO SIN, but he is treating the subject of justification and illustrating the great gospel truth that men may be treated as righteous on account of what Christ has done from the fact that they have been treated as sinners on account of what Adam did. And finally, as a further confirmation of this exposition, it may be remarked that the doctrine of the whole race being involved in the sin and condemnation of Adam was clearly and frequently taught by the Jewish doctors, and there is little reason to doubt it was the prevalent opinion of the Jews at this period, if this were the case, we cannot refuse to admit that Paul designed to teach what his readers could hardly fail to understand him to assert. Accordingly, impartial men, who do not themselves hold the doctrine of imputation, do not hesitate to acknowledge that Paul teaches it in this passage. This is the case with Knapp, as quoted in a former number of this work. Verses 13 and 14 we have necessarily anticipated most of the remarks which we deem it requisite to make respecting these verses. They are evidently designed to confirm the sentiment of verse 12. If that verse teaches, as we have endeavored to show it does, that all men are regarded and treated as sinners on account of the sin of Adam, there can be little difficulty in understanding them. The phrase, sin was in the world, is evidently of the same import with men were sinners. Sinners, in the sense of Pantes e Marton, of verse 12, either actual sinners or corrupt, or were regarded and treated as sinners. The last is, of course, the true meaning if our exegesis of the preceding verse is correct. All men are so regarded, Paul says on account of Adam, for they were so treated before the time of Moses, and consequently not for the violation of his law, etc., The words, sin is not imputed where there is no law, are interpreted by Professor Stewart after Calvin and others, as meaning, it is not imputed by men as sin, that is, men do not regard it or consider it as sin. But, in the first place, it is, to say the least, very doubtful whether the word elogite can be properly so rendered, and in the second, the phrase, to impute sin, spoken in reference to God, is so common in the scriptures that there can be little doubt the words are here to be understood in the ordinary way. The only reason for departing from this sense here is the supposed difficulty of interpreting the passage when the words are so explained. But this difficulty vanishes, as we have already seen, if the sense of verse 12 be rigidly apprehended. Professor Stewart, in commenting on this verse, says, page 217, et seek. There are some who state the whole of the Apostles' reasoning in the following manner, viz., Men's own sins were not imputed to them on the ground of their transgressing any law until the law of Moses was given, yet they were counted sinners, amartia en en cosmo. Consequently, it must have been by reason of Adam's sin imputed to them inasmuch as their own offences were not imputed. We should not notice this passage if Professor Stewart did not seem to ascribe this revolting doctrine to all who believe in the imputation of Adam's sin. It is perfectly plain from what follows that he has no reference to the opinion of such men as Whitby, who understand the Apostle as teaching that men did not, anterior to the time of Moses, incur the specific evil of natural death by their own transgressions. Those sinners in the sight of God, and so regarded and punished, yet their sins were not imputed to death, this was a punishment all incurred in Adam. This is altogether a different view from that which Professor Stewart here has in his mind, He argues to show that men were accountable for their own transgressions, and that men never were counted of God as without actual sin. Of course, he ascribes the negative of these propositions to those whom he opposes. Now, who are they who thus teach that men's personal sins were not at all reckoned until the law of Moses? He tells us they are those who say men have only original or imputed sin charged to their account. He names Augustine and President Edwards as though they held this opinion. He asks, how can the sin of Adam be imputed to all his posterity, and yet their own personal sins be not at all reckoned? And on page two to three, he seems to make all who presuppose the dissimilitude referred to in the 14th verse consists in the fact that Adam was an actual sinner, and others to whom reference is here made, sinners only by imputation, hold this doctrine. For this is the interpretation he says he has proved to be contrary to the declarations of the Old and New Testaments. From all this, it would really appear that Professor Stewart means to represent all who hold the doctrine of imputation as teaching that men were not accountable for their own sins before the time of Moses. It would be an easy matter for any one to refute the doctrine, if he is permitted to state it in this manner, provided he can find readers ignorant enough to receive such statements. It is hardly necessary to say that no such absurdity is involved in the interpretation given above. When Professor Stewart says that men die on account of Adam's sin, verse 16, does he mean to say they do not die on account of their own? Or when he says that for one offence they are condemned, would he admit they are not condemned for their own multiplied transgressions? We presume not. In like manner, when we represent the Apostle as arguing that men are regarded as sinners on account of Adam's sin because the universality of death cannot be accounted for in any other way, we leave the full accountability of men for their own sins of thought, word, and deed completely unimpaired. It is not only unjust to ascribe the opinion in question to those who hold the doctrine of imputation, but we know no class of men to whom it can be fairly attributed, as Professor Stewart states it. He certainly does Tollock and Schott, especially the former, injustice in ascribing the substance of this opinion to them. Tollock says expressly this non-imputation does by no means remove guilt, since Paul has expressly asserted that men, without a revelation, were without excuse. He says, indeed, that the accountability of men for their individual transgressions decreases in proportion to their ignorance and insensibility, when this is not the result of their own conduct. But he does not, even in substance, assert that men are chargeable only with imputed sin before the time of Moses. The phrase, sin is not imputed where there is no law, interpreted in reference to God, Tolloch understands comparatively. Professor Stewart makes it mean, sin is not regarded. This he also must take in a comparative sense, since it is not true that men without a written law have no sense of sin. If Professor Stewart will allow Tollock and Trot the liberty he assumes himself, the whole absurdity of the opinion he opposes is gone. That these writers make the apostle reason inconclusively we think true, but we do not think Professor Stewart has done them justice. It appears to us indeed very strange that he should represent them as holding in substance that men were counted sinners before the time of Moses by reason of Adam's sin being imputed to them, when neither of these writers holds the doctrine of imputation at all. It seems, in fact, to be the main design of Schott's dissertation to prove it. On page 335 he says, Vidimus hukesque verbis, verse 12, Nulla in esse vestigia dogmatis de... Imputatione peccati adamantisi. and, as to Tolloch, his whole exposition is founded upon a different principle. It would really be worth Professor Stewart's while to make a distinction between the imputation of Adam's sin and the transmission of a vitiated nature from him to his posterity. As all other theological writers make this distinction, he might as well do so. We are sure the works of such writers would be clearer to him, Than they can be at present, for it must seem strange to him to hear them saying in one breath that corruption or virtiositas has been propagated to all Adam's posterity, and in the next, deny that his sin is imputed to them if these two things are the same. But to return from this long digression, the next clause of any difficulty in these verses is even over them who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. The simple question is, what is the point of difference intended by the apostle? Is it that those referred to had not broken any positive or any externally revealed law? Or is it that they had not sinned personally? As there is no doubt the words may express either idea, the only question is which best suits the context. And here we may remark that there can be little doubt on this point if our exegesis of the preceding verses is correct. If it is Paul's object to prove that men are treated as sinners, i.e. die, on account of Adam, then it is essential that he should show that there is a class which die who are not personally sinners. This class is not the whole mass of men, even from Adam to Moses, but a certain set only out of this general class. Hence, secondly, it is to be noticed that the very construction of the passage would seem to require this interpretation. Paul says death reigned over all, from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned as Adam did. Here an evident distinction is marked between two classes of the victims of death, one general and the other subdivision under it. But if the latter clause be descriptive of the general class from Adam to Moses, this distinction is entirely lost. It, of course, would not do to say death reigned over all who had not broken any positive law, even over those who had not broken any positive law. The second clause must mark a peculiar class. Death reigned over all men, even over those whose death cannot be accounted for on the ground of their personal transgressions. Another great objection to the opposite view is that, if it be adopted, no satisfactory explanation can be given of the connection of these verses with the preceding, nor of the Apostle's argument. According to the view adopted by Professor Stewart, we must assume what we know to be incorrect, that the Jews thought the Gentiles were not sinners, and that Paul argues to prove they were, even though they had no written law. According to Tollock's view, the Apostle's argument, as Professor Stewart correctly remarks, is entirely inconclusive. He would make the Apostle reason virtually thus, as men were, comparatively speaking, not responsible for their offences, When involved in ignorance and destitute of a revelation, the cause of their death is to be sought in their participation of the corrupt nature of Adam. In this argument there is no force unless it be assumed that men were entirely free from responsibility for actual sin before the time of Moses, an assumption which Tolick rejects, as inconsistent with truth and the apostles' doctrine. In short, we know no interpretation of this passage but the ordinary one given above, which makes the apostle argue conclusively and express a sentiment at once pertinent and important. In what sense, then, is Adam a type of Christ? According to our view, the answer is plain. The point of resemblance is that, as Adam's sin was the ground of the condemnation of many, so Christ's righteousness is the ground of their justification. That this is the correct view, we think evident from what has already been said, and will become more so from what follows. Verses 15, 16, and 17. These verses are a commentary on the last clause of the 14th verse, Adam is a type of Christ. There is a strong analogy between them, and yet there are striking and instructive points of difference. The first, verse 15, is derived from the diversity of the results they produce, viewed in connection with the character of God. The one brought death, the other life, If then we die on account of what one man did, how much more shall we live on account of what one has done? If the one fact is consistent with the divine character, how much more the other? It is clear, therefore, that the apostle designs to illustrate the cardinal idea of the gospel, viz. to the imputation of the merit of one to a multitude, or the justification of many on the ground of the righteousness of one. The most important phrase in this verse, and that on which the interpretation of the whole depends, is the second clause, for if by the offence of one the many die. That there is a causal connection between the sin of Adam and the death of his posterity here asserted must, of course, be admitted. The only question is as to its nature. Does Paul mean to say that Adam's offence was the occasion of men's becoming sinful or of their committing sin, and that thus on this account they become subject to death, Or does he mean that Adams was the ground of their exposure to death, antecedent to any transgressions of their own? That the latter is his meaning we think very evident, for the following reasons. 1. It is not to be questioned that the words admit as naturally of this explanation as the other. By the offence of one, many die, is the assertion. Whether the offence is the mere occasional cause or the judicial ground of their dying must be determined from the context. No violence is done the words by this interpretation. 2. This interpretation is not only possible but necessary in this connection, because the sentiment expressed in this verse is confessedly the same as that taught in those which follow, and they, as we shall endeavour to show, admit of no other exposition. The sentence of condemnation, it is there said, has passed on all men for one offence of one man. 3. The whole drift and design of the Apostle's argument requires this interpretation as it was not his design to teach that Christ was either the source of sanctification or the occasion of men securing eternal life by their own goodness, so it would be nothing to his purpose to show that Adam was the occasion of men becoming wicked and thus incurring death for their own offences. Happily, there is no necessity for arguing this point at present. Professor Stewart interprets the phrase precisely as we do. He teaches very explicitly that the Apostle does not make the offence of Adam the mere occasion of the death of his posterity, but that it was the ground of its infliction. They die on account of his sin, independently of and antecedent to any offence of their own. This, which we submit as the true, unsophisticated doctrine of imputation, is, according to Professor Stuart, the doctrine of Paul. It will, therefore, not do for him any longer either to disclaim the doctrine or condemn its advocates, lest the reader should be incredulous on this point and deem it impossible that so warm an opposer of a doctrine should thus himself expressly teach it, we refer him to the analysis of verses 15, 16, and 17 on page 2 to 6, and to all that is said on verse 15. We can here give a few specimens only of his language. Quote, Adam did by his offence cause Thanatos to come on all without exception, inasmuch as all his race are born destitute of holiness, and in such a state that their passions will whenever they are moral agents, lead them to sin. All, too, are heirs of more or less suffering. It is true, then, that all suffer on Adam's account, that all are brought under more or less of the sentence of death. Page 227. End quote. Of course, a man's being born destitute of holiness, exposed to a certainty of sinning, is not on account of anything in himself. It is not on account of his own sins that this evil, thanatos, comes upon him. Its infliction is antecedent to any act of his own. This is imputation. This is what Professor Stewart says has happened to all the posterity of Adam, although it is precisely what he affirms, page 239, is entirely repugnant to Scripture, in opposition to justice and to the first principles of moral consciousness. Again, quote, to say that, upolu apethanon via alam is not to say that all have the sentence executed on them in its highest sense, which is contradicted by fact, but it is to say that in some respect or other all are involved in it, that as to more or less of it, all are subjected to it, and that all are exposed to the whole of the evil which death includes. Page 228. End quote. We presume, few believe, that death in its highest sense, eternal misery, is actually executed on all men on account of Adam's sin, We readily admit, Paul teaches no such doctrine, but, according to Professor Stewart, he does teach that death, penal evil, according to his own subsequent explanation, comes on all men antecedently, to any voluntary act of their own. This is the whole doctrine of imputation. It is but putting this principle into other words to say that men are regarded and treated as sinners on Adam's account, for to be treated as a sinner is to be made subject to the thanatos, threatened against sin. It matters not what this thanatas is. Professor Stewart himself says it is evil of any kind. The mere degrees of evil surely do not alter the principle. It never entered anyone's mind that the death threatened against all sin and all sinners was the same precise form and amount of evil. It is the evil of any and every kind consequent on sin and differs in character and amount in every individual case of its infliction. Taken, therefore, as Professor Stewart explains it, In this general sense, it is mere trifling to maintain that the doctrine of imputation is rejected by one man, who holds that it involves in a given case so much suffering, and retained by another who holds it involves either less or more. Zacharie makes it include in this case only natural death, and yet avows the doctrine of imputation. Professor Stewart makes it include a thousandfold more, yet says he rejects imputation. According to him, it includes the loss of original righteousness, the certainty of actual sin and temporal sufferings. Now, these are tremendous evils, viewed in connection with the moral and immortal interests of men. They are inconceivable and infinite. All this evil comes on men not for any offence of their own, but solely on account of Adam's sin. We are at a loss to conceive what Professor Stuart can object to in the common doctrine that all men are subject to death, i.e. penal evil on account of the sin of Adam, Will he say that it is shocking to think of myriads of men suffering forever simply for what one man has done? Happily, we hold no such doctrine. We believe as fully and joyfully as he does that the grace which is in Jesus Christ secures the salvation of all who have no personal sins to answer for. Will he say that it is inconsistent with the divine goodness and justice that men should be condemned for the sin of another? But this is his own doctrine, taught too plainly and frequently to be either mistaken or forgotten. Will he say... I do not hold the penalty to be so severe as you do. Loss of holiness, temporal suffering, certainty of sinning, and a consequent exposure to eternal death. This is a heavier penalty than that which Turretin supposes to be directly inflicted on account of Adam's sin. Will he further answer, I hold that Christ has more than made up the evils of the fall. For whom? For all who have no personal sins. So say we. Yea, for all who will accept of his grace. So say we again. We would fain hope that no film of prejudice or prepossession is so thick as to prevent the reader from perceiving that Professor Stewart teaches the doctrine of imputation as fully as any one holds or teaches it, and secondly that his objections are either founded in misconception or directed against what he admits to be a doctrine of the Bible. If he is so constituted as to believe that the evils above referred to come upon us on account of the sin of Adam, and yet be horrified at the idea that one man should die for the iniquity of another— We must console ourselves with the conviction that it is an idiosyncrasy with which no other man can sympathize. The second point of difference between Christ and Adam, which the Apostle mentions, is stated in the 16th verse, viz, Adam brings on us the guilt of but one sin, Christ frees us from the guilt of many. In other words, in Adam we are condemned for one offense, in Christ we are justified from many. We give this verse in the translation and with the explanatory clause of Professor Stewart, as it appears on page 230. Yea, the sentence, by one who sinned, is not like the free gift. For the sentence, by reason of one offence, was unto condemnation, was a condemning sentence. But the free gift, pardon, is of many offences, unto justification, i.e., is a sentence of acquittal from condemnation. We think this a correct exhibition of the meaning of the original. The most interesting clause in the verse is the second, the sentence, was for one offence unto condemnation, Crima ex is catacrima. The same question presents itself with regard to these words as in regard to the corresponding clause in the preceding verse. Does Paul mean to say that the one offense of Adam was the occasion of our being brought into condemnation, inasmuch as it occasioned our becoming sinners? Or does he mean that his offense was the ground of our condemnation? The latter is, as we think, the only interpretation which the words in this connection can possibly bear. This seems evident in the first place from the ordinary meaning of the terms. It is admitted on all hands that krima means properly a judicial decision, and we are willing to admit that it often, by metonymy, means punishment or condemnation. But it cannot have that meaning here, for it is connected with katakrima, since the apostle would then say condemnation or punishment leading to condemnation has come on all men. Besides, everyone here recognises the common Hellenistic construction of is with the accusative after verbs, signifying to be, to become, to regard, instead of the nominative. The sentence was to condemnation. Is therefore the same as saying, the sentence was condemnation, or, as Professor Stewart correctly renders it, a condemning sentence. This condemning sentence is said to be by or for one offence. What is the natural meaning of such an expression? Is it that the offence was the occasion of men's sinning, or that it was the ground of the sentence? Surely the latter. But secondly, in this place we have the idea of pardon on the one hand, which supposes that of condemnation on the other. If, as Professor Stewart says, the latter part of the verse means we are pardoned for many offences, the former must mean we are condemned for one. Hence, thirdly, we remark that the whole point meaning and truth of the passage is lost, unless this interpretation be adopted. The antithesis in this verse is evidently between the one offence and the many offences. To make Paul therefore say that the offence of Adam was the occasion of our being involved in a multitude of crimes, from all of which Christ saves us, is to make the evil and the benefits perfectly tantamount. Adam leads us into offences from which Christ saves us. Where, then, is the contrast if the evil incurred through Adam is identical with the evil from which Christ saves us? Paul evidently means to assert that the evil from which Christ saves us is far greater than that which Adam has brought upon us. He brought the condemnation of one offense only, Christ saved us from many. Fourthly, this interpretation is so obviously the correct one that Professor Stewart himself fully admits it. It is involved in the translation of the verse which we just quoted from him, The condemning sentence was by reason of one offence, and still plainer, on page two to six, The condemnation which comes upon us through Adam has respect only to one offence, while the justification effected by Christ has respect to many offences. To say that our condemnation has respect to one offence is to say we are condemned for one offence. And again, on the same page he tells us, that verse 16 repeats the same sentiment, i.e. with 15th verse, but in a more specific manner. What he is, according to Professor Stewart, the sentiment of verse 15, not that Adam's offence was the occasion, but the ground of our being subject to thanatos, i.e. condemned. Of course then, verse 16, which repeats this sentiment in a more specific manner, must mean that the one offence is the ground of our condemnation, We may remark here, as the words under consideration will in their connection admit of no other interpretation than that just given, so the idea which they express, being the same as that contained in verses 12, 15, 17, 18, and 19, may fairly be applied to explain the equivalent clauses in those verses, which, in themselves, may be less definite and perspicuous. To explain, therefore, verse 12 as teaching either that the corrupt nature derived from Adam or the actual sins which he was the occasion of our committing are the ground of death or condemnation coming upon us is inconsistent with the plain and admitted meaning of this clause, which asserts that the ground of condemnation here contemplated is neither our corrupt nature nor our actual sins but the one offence of Adam. Consequently, the interpretation given above of verses 12, 13, and 14 is the only one which can be carried consistently through. We must here pause to notice as remarkable an example of inconsistency on the part of Professor Stewart, as we remember ever to have met with. On page 230, he tells us, krima is katakrima, means a condemning sentence, and on the next page, after remarking that krima means either a sentence of condemnation or punishment, he asks how the phrase is to be understood here. The very expression, he says, shows that krima is to be taken as explained above, viz., as meaning the evils inflicted by Adam's sin, and then adds, whether this evil be loss of original righteousness, or a disposition in itself sinful, it is true in either case that the krima, the evil inflicted or suffered, is of such a nature as to lead the way to katakrima, condemnation, i.e., thanatos, in its highest and most dreadful sense. That is, on one page we are told the words mean a sentence of condemnation and on the next certain evils which lead to condemnation, two inconsistent and opposite interpretations. Need this be proved? Need it be argued that a sentence of condemnation is one thing, punishment another? If krima here means the former, it cannot here mean the latter. It is surely one thing to say that a sentence of condemnation has come upon us for Adam's sin, and a very different one to say that certain evils have come upon us which lead the way to our incurring condemnation ourselves. Let it be remembered that this is one of the most important clauses in this whole passage, one on which, perhaps more than any other, The interpretation of the whole depends, and we think our readers will share our surprise that Professor Stewart's views should be so little settled as to allow him to give such opposite views of its meaning in two consecutive pages. This surprise will be increased when they observe on page 235, when speaking of the 18th verse, he reverts to his first interpretation, and makes it mean a sentence of condemnation. This too is the interpretation of Tollock, flat Copper, verse 15, Turreton, and in fact of almost all commentators. The verse 17 either contains an amplification merely of verse 15, or peculiar emphasis is to be laid on the word lamvanantes, or, as Flatt and Professor Stewart suppose, it expresses the idea that Christ not only secures the pardon of our many offences, as stated in verse 16, but confers upon us positive happiness and glory. The sentiment, Professor Stewart says, runs thus, For if all are in a state of condemnation by reason of the offence of one, much more shall those towards whom abundance of mercy and pardoning grace are shown be redeemed from a state of condemnation and advanced to a state of happiness. Here we wish the reader to remark, first, that Professor Stewart says the phrase, Death reigns, designates a state of condemnation. This is expressly asserted on page 233. Second, that all are brought into this state of condemnation by the offence of one. The first clause of the verse, he thus translates, For if by the offence of one, death reigned by means of one. By this he means not that the offence of Adam was the occasion merely of death reigning over all, or of all being brought into a state of condemnation, but that this offence was the ground of their condemnation, antecedent to any act of their own. This must be his meaning, for he thus explains the word, By the offence of one, many die, in verse 15, and he can hardly maintain that the words, by the offence of one death reigns, express a different idea. Besides, he tells us expressly that this verse, verse 17, repeats the sentiment of verse 15, see page 2-6. to We wish the reader third to remark that if verse 17 expresses the sentiment, all men are in a state of condemnation on account of the offence of Adam, and if it repeats the sentiment of verses 15 and 16, and if verse 18, containing the identical words and expressing the same idea with verse 16, repeats the sentiment of verse 12, then does verse 12, by Professor Stewart's own showing, express the idea that all men are condemned on account of Adam's sin, and to any act of their own. Thus, we have our interpretation of that verse confirmed, and Mr. Stewart's overthrown by the professor himself. Fourth, the reader should notice that Mr. Stewart was led to the correct, though for him inconsistent, interpretation of verse 17 by objecting to Tollock's rendering vikiosune, holiness, instead of justification. He very properly remarks that such an interpretation is inconsistent with the antithesis to the state of condemnation indicated by othanatos evasilevse in the preceding clause. He insists, very reasonably, that the two parts of the sentence should be made to correspond. If the former speaks of condemnation, the latter must of justification. This obvious principle of interpretation the reader will find Professor Stewart forgets when he comes to the 19th verse. There is another important admission which must be noticed, and that is that the all who suffer for Adam's sin are not the all who are benefited by Christ. The two classes are not necessarily coextensive. If all are in a state of condemnation by reason of the offence of one, much more shall those towards whom abundance of mercy and pardon and grace are shown, be redeemed from a state of condemnation and advanced to a state of happiness. All are not thus redeemed from condemnation and advanced to a state of happiness. This too, Professor Stewart, it will be seen, forgets. End of section three.